During the Second World War, this man found his first obstacle, and that was his own mortality. He joined the Air Force in 1941, was part of the Pacific's fleet, and uh, was a bombardier. At that time, uh, in the U.S. Air Force, flying into combat was only half the danger um, because due to numerous technical problems and inadequate training and so on, more than 50,000 airmen, 50,000, just think about if that would happen today, unthinkable, 50,000 airmen died in non-combat-related accidents. That's just how many people were fighting and all the chaos that was going on at that time. So it was not unusual that Louis' plane ended up crashing into the Pacific Ocean as he and his crewmates were flying around looking for somebody else who had crashed into the ocean. They were the rescue mission, and they ended up needing to be rescued themselves. So sadly, a number of people on the plane died at that time, but him and two other crewmen actually survived and ended up on a raft out in the Pacific Ocean for 47 days. I think one of the guys died, but Louis and one of the other airmen ended up actually surviving that period of time. But the problem was is they were discovered by a Japanese vessel. And they were taken on and eventually sent to a POW camp, which ended up being incredibly brutal. They were beaten, starved, and overworked. And due to his fame, because Louis was famous, he had run in the 1936 Olympics, and he was one of the fastest middle-distance runners in the world at the time, so they knew who he was. Um, the, one of the colonels at the POW camp took a special liking, if you want to use that term in a rather cynical way, to him. Uh, this gentleman's name was Mutsuhiro Watanabe, and the, the, the prisoners nicknamed him the bird. And he was the cruel overseer of this particular camp. He would, do, he would do terrible things. Like he took one prisoner and just had him in his underwear and locked him in a little shed for four straight days in sub-zero temperatures. Um, he had one person who would report to him uh, consistently every day for a number of weeks just to be punched in the face. This is the type of thing he would do. And he took a particular interest in Louis Zamperini and just just made his life a living hell. In fact, there's a movie that came out a few years ago called Unbroken, which kind of dramatized those events and, and showed how it went. And so this process went on for a couple of years, and amazingly, Louis didn't die under those conditions and ended up being released when the war ended. He ended up returning home, getting married, and the problem is, is he came home a deeply, deeply haunted man, deeply haunted and broken. Every night he would wake up screaming from the horrible nightmares that he was having of that cruel God who nearly killed him uh, during those, those years. Post-traumatic stress disorder wasn't known at the time, but this was his main obstacle that he just really wasn't prepared for in any way. So as happened with many of the men at that time, he began to abuse alcohol, and soon his marriage began to fall apart. On the verge of divorce, Louis's wife, Cynthia, convinced him to go with her to a Billy Graham crusade. It was near their home in Los Angeles. He had avoided everything church-related, Christian-related, especially big tent meeting-related, because, uh, one, he was resentful about a whole bunch of stuff, and two, he had always been poisoned ever since he was a boy about going to those big tent meetings, as many people are. They're terrified of them. But he finally relented, 
and he went along. And when he was there, the message that night really clicked for him because it reminded him of something he had said on the raft. He'd made a prayer on the raft and he'd cut a deal with the Lord. If you would get me out of this, I will. You know the usual that people do when they're in a moment of crisis. And he was reminded of that. And he began to realize and believe that God had helped him to survive. And then you can know what happened is he went forward and he surrendered his life to Jesus. And he said that when he got home from the crusade, it was unbelievable. He told the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association later in an interview that he did not have a nightmare that night and he hasn't had one since. The nightmares stopped instantaneously. Another thing that began to happen in him is he began to go on the next journey, the next big obstacle in his life. And what was that? That was forgiveness, the one that none of us ever want to talk about, but we all have to go through if we want to be followers of Jesus. He'd originally vowed to never, ever return to Japan, but in 1950, he went back on that vow, and he returned to Japan, and he went to a Tokyo prison where most of the guards who had been in that prisoner of war camp that he was at uh, were now serving sentences for war crimes. And he went around each and every one of them, and he forgave them in person, except Watanabe. Because Watanabe, after the war, had scoppered and had gone into hiding and only came out of hiding after 1952 when everybody had been forgiven and absolved of their, their war crimes. And so he never, ever wanted to meet Zamperini ever throughout their lives because they both lived to be old men. But he was like, hey, I did what I did because it was part of war. I don't want to... I, I, don't, I don't want your forgiveness, all that kind of stuff. But instead, Zamperini wrote him a letter saying that he forgave him, explaining what he'd gone through under his treatment, but had said this to him, love has replaced the hate I had for you because of what Jesus has done in him. So, you know, we all face many obstacles in life. Some of them are physical, some of them emotional, some of them are mental. Louis Zamperini's obstacles in moving forward in his life were trauma, bitterness, and hatred. And in the end, he discovered healing for those things in the person of Jesus, the Messiah. Today, I want to talk about and consider in our own lives the power and ability of God to overcome obstacles in our lives. And I want us to discover as we go on that journey that the best way to overcome these obstacles is to do it God's way. And that's where it gets difficult. Because God's way is always just a little bit more awkward than we'd like it to be. And so we're going to look at the people of Israel. And one of the obstacles they had to overcome when they first came into the land were the walls of Jericho. So there we go. We've got a, an artist's depiction of the old city of Jericho. Jericho is a really interesting city, by the way. I don't know if you've read about it or know much about it. But many kind of archaeologists believe it to be possibly the oldest city in the world. It's like the first city human beings ever really constructed and built. And they're pretty convinced that it's the oldest walled city in the world. So when the Israelites are arriving at this place, and this we're talking an easy, what, maybe 3,000 years ago, there are Israelites arriving to this place, and there's the city. It's probably famous for having this wall. Probably considered to be impregnable, probably considered to be undefeatable. But there's this dynamic going on. If you hear a few weeks ago when we were talking about, Ray, last week we were talking about Rahab, the people in the city were terrified of the Israelites, even though they had this wall. 
And so they'd shut this place up. And so the, the Israelites are coming to a major obstacle to the land. And this is where we're going to pick up our reading. So pray with me before we read. Um, Father in heaven, we pray for my little baby in the hallway causing lots of noise that whoever's got her, she'd be nice to them. Uh, and we also pray today as we get into this message thinking about obstacles, um, whether they're self-inflicted, whether someone else is putting them into our lives, or whether it's something that's going on and, and, and trials that we're just having to endure. Lord, would you even now begin to empower us? I pray for your spirit of revelation in this room this morning that you would begin to give us ideas and, and lead us how to move forward in our lives and how to deal with the obstacles that we're facing right now. Help us, Lord, to soften our hearts even now too. Would you soften our hearts to be willing to do things your way? Pray for my words this morning. Let them be from you and let anything not of you be forgotten. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I mean, you can open up to Joshua chapter 5. I'll be reading from verse 13, and then I'll have a wee stop, and then I'll skip over to another bit. And it says this. Now, when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? The commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals, and, and for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Moving into chapter 6, it says this. Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hand, along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout. Then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up and everyone straight in. I can just imagine Joshua listening to the Lord. And I actually believe that Joshua believed that was going to happen. Right? I think Joshua had faith. Joshua is like, yeah, sure, no problem. Let's do this thing. I'm in. What I'm thinking about is when Joshua went back to everybody else, right? Because you know what the rest of the crew was like, right? And he's like, right, guys, this is what's going to go down. First, we're going to camp here for seven days. We're going to walk around this place. And then we're going to chill out. Now, some of them probably like the chill out idea. But the rest of us are like, dude, what are you talking about? Why are we wa What? People must have thought, what is going on here? This is really a little weird. But, you know, they went with it, so that's good for them, you know. So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and, ha and have seven priests carry trumpets in front of it. And he ordered the army, Advance, march around the city with an armed guard, go ahead of the Ark of the Lord. And so they did that for six days, jumping over to verse 15. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times, 
in the same manner, except on that day they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared, because she hid the spies we sent. But keep away from the devoted things, so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring, tr- and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into his treasury. When the trumpet sounded, the army shouted, and at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed, so everyone charged straight in, and they took the city. I wonder how many of them were surprised that the wall fell down. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm a little like that. Right? I know I'm the pastor, right? but confession time. I pray for a lot of stuff, but when it actually happens, I'm like, what? Wow, that's interesting. How did that happen? You know, I know exactly how it happened, but I still ask the stupid question, right? Because, you know, my skull's a little thick. Things take a while to get in there. But anyway, so there's a few points I want to bring to you from this text, starting at the angel encounter and then moving to the actual obstacle stuff. And the first thing is this. Remember that there are three sides. There are three sides. And this is a valuable lesson that Joshua learns when he encounters the angel of the Lord. And so there's a number of sides we need to think about. The first side is our adversary. Those of us who are living life need to recognize that they're in the spiritual realm. There's a person called the devil, Satan, and he is against you. He is not for you. He would like to bring death, destruction, mayhem, and just general miserableness to your life at any opportunity. In the story, the other adversary is Jericho, the self, its city. And in your own life, you might have some people you know as adversaries. Maybe there's somebody at work. Maybe you have someone who's a friend who you wonder why they're a friend, whatever it is. But you might have somebody in your life who's, who it seems that their life mission is to make yours miserable, whoever that may be. If you're a teenager, you might think of that person as your parent. Hopefully not, but you should. You should not think of them as your, as your adversary. You should think of them as your loving guardian who tells you what to do occasionally, you know. Or you might have someone in your life who is actively working against you, like actively trying to stop you from moving forward where it is. Maybe somebody's trying to stop you from having a promotion at work. Maybe someone's trying to stop you from getting a job. Something like that that is going on. Maybe somebody's trying to stop you from pressing into what the Lord has has got for you. Maybe it's some sort of service that you're trying to do, but somebody's just getting in the way of that. And they're, you know, doing it maliciously so. And then sometimes it does get complicated, like I mentioned. You might have a loved one in your life where you find that where that person you think should be for you, they just seem to be against you. They're supposed to be on your side, but they're going after you and and making your life hard, like in the church. You know, another follower of Jesus. Somebody that, you know, you're supposed to be in the family of God with, yet they're just like saying mean things about you, gossiping about you behind your back or or so on. You know, in the early vineyard, we had other denominations who would say that against us. In fact, there are still denominations who preach against us because of our, you know, theological persuasion. And so what do we do about those things? I remind you 
of something John Wimber, one of our founders, said, and he said this, my brother is never my enemy, even if he acts like it. And so that's why in the vineyard we have a policy of praying for all churches, even ones that we disagree quite vehemently with on a theological scale. But we always pray that God will give us love for those churches because the fact of the matter is, is they're still trying to follow Jesus even if we think they're doing it wrong, right? They're still brothers and sisters in the Lord even if they don't act like it. So we have adversaries. That's one side. Then there's another side. There's our side, right? And, you know, we often make a lot of huge and unsubstantiated assumptions about our side. And what are some of these assumptions? Well, the first assumption is, is that God is on our side, isn't it? You know, I often think that God must be on my side because, you know, why not? Joshua makes this assumption right at the beginning until the angel reveals that there's a third option to him. Another assumption we make is that we are the good guys, obviously. You know, whenever you watch the news, and we're talking about, you know, whatever other country it is out there, we're obviously the good guys, right? Because we are. Aren't we? You know, we're the good guys. So we always make that assumption. And then the third assumption we often make is that whoever is against us or whoever is disagreeing with us is wrong and probably slightly touched or evil. You know, we tend to go that way pretty quick, especially that's what you see happening on Twitter all the time. They're all evil. Anybody against me is all evil. You know, there is nothing good that I can learn from that person. Right? That is often the position you see taken in society today. You want to see a great example of that? Just look at the dialogue between the two major political parties at this moment in time and their vehement extremist followers on Twitter. You know, it's like there is nothing good in the Republican Party. It is evil to its core. And then you jump over to a Republican meeting. It's like the Democrats represent the devil himself. You know, you're like, wow, it's amazing. There's two devils out there. How am I going to get through life? What am I going to do? Save me. And so you, you have that. You know, this is the way human nature operates when we think about our side. And then there's the third side that we take for granted, I imagine. There's the Lord's side. And you can tell from the story that when the angel says that he's on neither side but the Lord's, that it's a bit of a wake-up call for Joshua. He goes, now whatever word he used or, you know, in his mind there, oh poop. And the first thing he does is he hits the deck, right? Because he realizes something. He's in danger, right? Now, I always, I'm always like this with the Lord. Hey, Lord, like, I want to be in your presence. I want to have, like, you know, the throne room vision. I want to see an angel. I want to have a conversation, ask a couple of questions. But then I read the Bible, and I realize that's not how it's going to go down if it ever happens. If I see these things, I'm probably going to do what everybody else in the Bible did. I'm going to hit the deck and shake around a little and beg for mercy. Because inside of us, there's an inner wimp just waiting to come out, every single one of us. Anyway, so Joshua hits the deck because he knows he's in danger. This is the angel of the Lord, and the angel of the Lord can kill him. He realizes that even though he is leading God's people to where God has told them to go, that there is always the potential that they themselves will be at odds with the Lord. This is a really important lesson that we need to be mindful as modern Christians, as a modern church community today, is that many of us live life with the assumption that God is on our side 
that he must be for us, that he is all about what we are all about, and he's just going to you know, go with us wherever we go. But actually, we need to be asking a question as we go along that journey, and it's this. Are we on God's side? It's not like, God, will you be on my side? That's the wrong question to ask, because that's the question Joshua asks. He says, are you on my side? And the angel says, no, I'm on my side. Whose side are you on? And then Joshua's like, oh, dearie me, I need to look at things differently. And so this is the question that you and I have to ask in our lives all the time. And you know, I get this wrong all the time, especially early on in my marriage, we'd have a, my wife and I would have an argument, heated discussion, fight, right? And I would, I journaled a lot in those days, right? And we wouldn't be, we, we wouldn't be getting anywhere with this fight, so I'd go off and I'd scribble in my journal everything that was wrong with this situation and what was wrong with my wife and blah, 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 right, 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 right. And then I'd get to the end and the Lord start speaking to me and tell me to go back and, you know, say sorry. I'm like, but I'm in the right. Go say sorry. Why do you always take her side? Is what I would, I would write this. I, I need to destroy those. It just reminded me, those need to be burned. Anyway, so, and it would, I would go through this process of realizing that God often didn't care about what our conflict was about as a couple. What he cared about is how I responded to the conflict. Was I treating her like she was the daughter of the living God, or was I treating her like my little happiness counter who was there to make me happy? And I realized early on that she wasn't there to make me happy, that she's the daughter of the living God, and I get to do life with her, and I need to figure out what, what that means. I'm still trying to figure out what that means. It's not easy. And so all too often, we're not asking the right question, and we should be asking that question. Am I on the Lord's side? Am I aligning my life with what he is up to and what he is trying to do in my life and do through my life with others? Or am I just trying to get him onto my program? And you know, in the modern American church, we are not asking that question enough. And that goes for really conservative churches, and that goes for really liberal churches too. You know, it's funny because when you don't go to a particular church or you look at another denomination, this is funny. You can look at them and go, wow, they're really just trying to get God onto their program. And then you look at the other ones and go, they're really trying to get God onto their program too. Now, they should really be like us because, you know, we're on God's program. That's when you should start sweating, by the way, start getting nervous. Right? That's when you should be praying that I'm praying. Right? What is God's program? We need to ask that question. And... Uh, and as we do that, we should always be aware of that when we engage in, with society as well, when we engage with the lost. When we're interacting with, with, with other people, we should be going, you know, what is the Lord? What would the Lord want? Because right now I want to I punch this person in the face. Does the Lord want me to do that? Or right now I want to tell this person that everything they're saying is right just so I can get away from them. Is that what the Lord wants? I don't know. We need to ask that question. And, you know, especially it being election year, we should be asking that question with our politics. You know, as you begin to consider who you're going to vote for this year, and I know often it's really difficult, you know. I'm not a citizen, so I don't have this dilemma yet, right? But you do. And so 
you've got to sit down and go, Lord, which one would you want me to vote for? Because actually, generally speaking, as we look at all the candidates, I don't think any of them are on the Lord's side. Okay? Now, if you want to throw me under the bus for saying that, I'm sorry. But when I look at them and I look at their policies, I'm like, okay, I think, the, you know, the Lord would like that policy, that policy, and that policy in the Democrat. And actually, he probably is okay with Trump doing that and that. But all these other things that they're talking about, I don't think the Lord's okay with those things. But, you know, you've got to vote for one or the other, so, you know, good luck. And so you've got to work through that with the Lord. Say, Lord, where, where, what are you wanting me to connect with here? And, you know, in this church, we're not going to tell you who to vote for, but we're going to tell you to think about your vote. We're going to tell you to think about, Lord, which way do you want me to go on this? And it's quite funny. If you get all of you in your room, some of you are going to come up with different answers because it's actually quite, quite hard to hear the Lord's will on that sometimes. And we need each other to help each other in that. If you have a disagreement, this is the rule in election year here at the Vineyard. If you start disagreeing with one another about something, you realize that somebody you really like in church has posted something on social media that's for the other party, and you're like, oh, I'm horrified. I didn't know that about them. And you want to get into it with them. Don't be, don't be getting the fingers on the keyboard, you all. You have to go pay for a coffee for that person and go have a physical conversation and have it out that way because uh, that's a much better way to do it. So, who is on the Lord's side? Am I on the Lord's side? And then once we begin to ask those questions, we can actually think about overcoming the walls that are standing before us, overcoming the boundaries that we need to get through. And, you know, there are all sorts of walls. There's walls set, us, set against us by whatever adver adversary or enemy we might have. And in this instance, the people of Israel need to overcome Jericho, the walls of Jericho. And so I'm asking you the question today, what walls or obstacles are you facing in your life right now? What's getting in your way of you moving forward? You know, assuming that the thing you're moving forward to is what you feel led, led in, what you feel God's asking you to achieve. What are those obstacles? Are they set there by an enemy or are they, they set there by something else? How do you view them? Are you viewing them as something that you can overcome with the Lord's help? Or are you, you know, are you moving forward? Or are you seeing them as something that you just can't defeat? You know, God calls us to move forward in the hope that he can help us to overcome these things. But sometimes we let our obstacles generate a fear in us, an apprehension to the point of paralysis, where we don't do anything. You have different obstacles, you know. And sometimes, like, for me, tithing was always easy, right? I became a Christian when I was 16, a charismatic Methodist church. I was reading the Bible one day. It said, give away a tenth of your income. I didn't have any income. I didn't care. And uh, I was talking to my pastor about it. He says, yeah, well, that's what you should do when you start making money. And I was like, okay. So I went off and I made 100 bucks. I put 10 in the church. Easy peasy, lemon squeezy, right? Never been a problem for me, right? But I know some other people who have never been in church and they get saved to like 50. And they're like, you want me to give how much of my income to the church? It's like it could be really hard for some people. So, you know, pray for those folks. Anyway, so walls, walls that be presented to us from somebody else and need to overcome them. And then there's walls that we construct in our own hearts. And these walls are often walls that we construct up against the Lord, you know, for whatever reason. Normally, they're the reasons and the excuses that we find so that we can say no to God. You know, maybe there's an area in your life that you just know isn't pleasing to the Lord, but you're like, it's just too scary to let him speak into it. 
And so you build up this wall of excuses to try and protect yourself from the Lord. And it's, we do it so that we don't need to relinquish control. You know, because, I don't know about you, but you know, when, you, when someone first becomes a Christian, if you've grown up in the church, praise the Lord that you've been a Christian your whole life. That's fantastic. And you, you know, you still go through these things that everybody else. But when you, when you first become a Christian as, as, as a heathen, and you get faced with this moment of you have to relinquish control of your life to this deity that you can't see. It's a massive, intimidating decision. And then you make that decision, and it's amazing. You feel like three, 35 pounds is going to say three stone, but you guys don't know what stone is. It's like, it's like stone is like 14 pounds, right? So you feel like three stone lighter. You walk home on air from the meeting that you're at. You're like, you feel the forgiveness. And you're like, man, I am, I am all in. I surrender everything. Jesus, amazing. And then you're a Christian for 10 years and, and you forget what that felt like. And then all of a sudden, you feel like you have to give your life to Jesus again because now you have to surrender this, you have to surrender that. You've picked up this bad habit. You've got this enemy you need to forgive. And you're like, ah. And, and surrender all of a sudden becomes utterly, utterly intimidating because you, you, you're scared to relinquish control of your life and of that situation to the Lord because you're scared he's going to ask you to do something you don't want to do. Or you're scared he's going to ask you to change. And you're not sure you can. And so, you know, do you have walls like that in your life today? There's something like that sitting in you that you need to overcome. And then there's the third type of wall that we really shouldn't be trying to overcome, the third boundary that we shouldn't be trying to cross. And those are the ones that the Lord sets up for us. You know, I'm not really going to go into those today. But I'm going to give them a, a sideways look and say, hey, you know, don't try to go through those ones. They're to be respected rather than overrun. And so as we begin to consider these walls, built by others or walls that we've constructed ourselves, there comes a point in time where we need to say, okay, it's time to overcome this. How can I do this? And there's two ways to do that. There's the way that you want to do it, or there's the Lord's way. And so Joshua, as he begins to approach the city of Jericho, uh, dedicates himself to do it the Lord's way. And he realizes that the Lord's way is the best way even if it's not necessarily the sensible way. So, you know, a normal army back in the day would have come up to a city with a wall and they would have begun to build siege works. So they might have gone and cut down a forest. They actually cut down whole forests, especially the Romans. Built some big battering rams, tried to ram the door down, tried to get in the city that way. Or they would have done what they used to do in other days. They would have built earthen ramps. Do you know what an earthen ramp is? Put your hand up if you have no idea what an earthen ramp is. You're a historian. You're not allowed to put your hand up. Okay? And so an earthen ramp, basically, folks, is an army would camp around a city for like sometimes years, right? try and starve the city out, and they would get dirt, and they begin to pile dirt up. Like, you know, the guys who are lower on in the army, they would be the piling of the dirt. The officers would sit and kind of watch them, hey, you missed a bit, you know, that kind of thing. And they would build basically a hill so that they could build it all the way up to the top of the wall so they could run up the hill and jump over. And that's, that's an earthen ramp, you know, lesson finished. And so that's what a normal army would have done. This is probably what the Israelites with Joshua would have expected. Okay, we're going to camp here, we're going to do some of this stuff. And then they pray, they seek the Lord, and the Lord says, ah, don't worry about that stuff. How about you just walk around it? In fact, while you're walking around it, See that, see that box that I made that you have to stick in, the, in, in your tent of worship that's got the broken, the broken Ten Commandments that you broke before I even gave them to you? 
I want you to carry that around as well, right? And like have a bunch of guys blow some trumpets. And like the whole army, just walk around. You know, go for a stroll, you know, a flat hike. Easy peasy. And do it for seven days. And then I'm going to push the walls over. Like, okay. You know, and then their faith journey began. Now, their faith journey was only seven days. Yours might be two years, ten years, seven years. God might be asking you to do something like, okay, if I start doing that, I have no idea how God's going to come through for me. But God's saying, how about you just start walking and um, trust the result to me on the back end. And that's often where faith becomes difficult. A life with Jesus becomes difficult because now we start walking and we're not sure what the result is going to be. Because, you know, the Lord has different ideas for us, and sometimes they're weird. Sometimes there's a respected way to deal with the situation. You know, like how many of us, and, you know, Christians do it all the time, our kids are getting bullied at school. What do we tell them? Because we know what bullies are like. Bullies only ever stop bullying once someone stands up to them, you know. And, you know, just stand up to them and sock them one, and then they'll stop picking on you. And you know, it tends to work. But it's not really the kingdom way of doing it, is it? And this is, every parent has this dilemma when their kids go to school. Do I tell them the kingdom way or just do I tell them just to whack the kid? I don't know. And then you have a faith crisis and you go through that for a couple of weeks and months. When we surrender to the Lord, sometimes he throws some ideas to us that, you know, are just a little bit hard to come by. He takes... The, the logical rule book of the world, and he tosses it out the window, and he invites us to live a different way. And some of those ways we can see in the gospel, he asks us to live our life according to a kingdom economy, you know, like be loving to your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. If somebody wants you to do something for them, go the extra mile and do it more than expected. Give in order to receive, that's illogical, isn't it? You know? There's all sorts of stuff that he tells us to do. You know, surrender your life to me fully in order to get real life. That's, that's weird. Lots and lots of stuff, kingdom stuff in the gospel that you can read about when you go home that you know are difficult to live out. But actually, once we live out and we practice living them out, we realize they actually work. We realize that they actually work. And then sometimes he asks us to do things that are totally unconventional and just weird. You know? Like you're in Target and you see somebody and he says, go pray for that person because they're, they're really struggling in life right now. And you're like, Target, Lord. I don't know about that. I might get away with this in Walmart because everybody's weird in Walmart. But Target, these are like you know, respectable people. You know the saying, you know, the comedian saw somebody crying in Target and they walked up to them and said, hey, I think you should be in Walmart. Wrong store. But he asks you to go do that, and you walk up to that person, and, and you might be wrong. This might be yesterday's pizza, just making you hallucinate ever so slightly. And you walk up to that person and say, hey, look, I was just standing over there, and I was prayerful. I feel like the Lord said to me, you're going through a really hard time in your life. If that's true, can I pray for you? And the person says, no, psycho, get away from me. Okay, that's not such a good result. But actually, sometimes the person says, actually, yes, I am. How did you know? Thank you. Yes, please do pray for me. That's actually happened to me in Target. I went up to somebody and prayed for them, and they were actually really thankful. I was like, phew, close call. 
I had another experience. I dropped the kids off at school, and I try not to tell these stories, but and I'd seen this guy walking over the past couple of months, um, and I'd seen him first going on his walk, and he was walking unassisted. And then as as time's gone by, I've seen him now. He's walking with crutches, and I was like, "Yeah, I wonder if I should pray for that dude one day." I don't know, whatever. Ignored that thought, right? And then I was dropping the kids off school, and this is like the fifth time I've seen him. I pulled up to the lights, and he crossed right in front of me. And there's a nursery just like, you know, 300 feet down where there's a car park. And I knew I could turn into the main road, get into the car park, and catch him. I was like, no, 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 this is yesterday's pizza. I'm out. So I pulled around and drove down the road. And as I'm driving, there's that voice in the back of your head that says, what if that was the Lord? What if you're living in disobedience right now and you've got to go to church on Sunday and talk to other people about saying yes to God? You should turn around and go catch that guy. I'm like, dilemma. So I did. I turned around and raced up after this dude, creepy Billy, to the rescue again and uh, pulled into the car park and chased, chased him down the street. And I caught up to him because he was going slow because he's on crutches. Yeah. So I said to him, hey, man, I was driving by and I saw you walk in and I just felt like God told me to come pray for you. Is there anything I could pray for you? I didn't go after the crutches. Because uh, it's amazing what people ask for. And he just said, pray that I won't fall. I was like, what an interesting... Sometimes you say, hey, can I pray for your healing? And you miss out on something. Pray that I won't fall. So what's he really want prayer for? He's afraid. So I was yeah, man, I'll pray for him. So I just prayed for him. I prayed God stabilize him, all that. And then, you know, I threw a prayer for healing in there too. Because uh, he had MS, so... And I know people who've been healed of MS. So I prayed for him and he was thankful. And I got him a car and drove away. I have no idea what the Lord's doing in that life. But sometimes God asks you to do something unconventional. Now, I might not be praying for somebody. It might be a business decision. Maybe you know you've got to do this. But as you're praying and seeking the Lord, you feel like God's telling you to do that instead. And I know a couple of you have done that in your businesses. And you've not regretted it. But it was pretty weird and stressful at the time, wasn't it? Pretty weird and stressful at the time. But you know, this is the thing. When we choose to walk with the Lord and we ask Him to be Lord of our lives, sometimes He asks us to do the unconventional. And sometimes it's because He's going to give us success, but sometimes it's because He wants to develop something in our lives because He's all about the journey. you know. And I think part of when you look at the people of Israel going to, into the land, He could have given it to them in a conventional way, but He was really a part of their journey. He wanted to give it to them in a way that had them relying on him and needing him to be with them. You know, carrying a big heavy box around a city seven times, pretty unconventional. Whatever God's asking you to do right now might be the just the generally weird kingdom stuff that you already know, or it might be something just, you know, a level up on that. But whatever it is, what is it for you? You know, Are you obeying that? Are you saying yes to that? On the flip side of that, are you even asking the question? Are you even saying, hey, Lord, what is it you want me to do? Am I on your side? Am I doing things your way? If the answer is no to any of those things, I would like to invite you today to stand with me and say yes to the Lord and go on a little bit of a faith journey. It'll be scary, but I'm pretty sure you won't regret it. 
Why don't you stand with me? Scott, you want to come on up?